You're watching Market Call. I'm Dan Nathan, along with my good friend Guy Adami. Every week at 11 a.m. on Thursdays, we demystify the latest Wall Street research, and we have a packed show today. We're going to talk rates, tech, financials, oil, and we're going to take some of your questions here. We're going to be joined by the great Liz Young, the head of strategy at SoFi. Today's Market Call is brought to you by three presenting sponsors, FactSet, SoFi, and Open Exchange. Guy Adami, let's get into it, man. This week, we are only, what, a little more than three trading days into the year, and it feels like it's been a couple of months here. Extraordinary, and Happy New Year on this Thursday. It's Yeah, obviously, the last couple of days have been fascinating yeah. to say. Where we're going to talk about all the things driving it, but you look up, markets lower, and you say to yourself, we're crashing here. Meanwhile, and we're going to talk about this, the S&P is, what, a couple percent away from an all-time high, which, oh, by the way, we only made a week or so ago. So perspective is really important, Dan, Nathan, perspective. Yeah, it is. I mean, listen, you know, you and I have been tracking these charts like most market participants here. And, you know, the S&P has been bottom left, upper right over the last year. We hadn't had a peak to trough decline of 6%. That's one of five years and maybe 50 that we hadn't had a 10% peak to trough decline. That was last year. And so, listen, you know, you've said this on many occasions that investors have just gotten fairly comfortable with the sort of fits and starts that our economy is going to have with this different variants of the virus here. Year. And if you look at where the S&P 500 closed the year, where it was trading on Tuesday morning, it just doesn't seem like investors are particularly worried. At least in the stock market, you see that uptrend. You see the intersection of the breakout from late October. You can do the math on that one, Guy Adami. That would be like a 5% decline back to that technical support level. And it seems like that should probably happen back to that uptrend and kind of set the stage. Get a little fear into this market. Take out a little bit of that excess and then set the stage for possibly a move higher. That's the best thing that could possibly happen for the market. And if you listen to you know some of the analysts out there, if you listen to Tom Lee, for example, Mike Wilson has talked about it, all yeah. expecting a rough road in the first half of this year, first couple of months of this year, and then they think it's smooth sailing in the back half. Maybe smooth sailing is a little bit of hyperbole, but you get what I'm saying. I think the best possible thing that could happen is we have a test of that trend line. And oh, by the way, maybe even take a shot at the 200-day moving average, which comes in around 4160 or so. That sounds somewhat counterintuitive, but you would flush a lot of excess out of the market, and I think it would set up for a tremendous back half of 2022. Right. And speaking of flushing, you know, we got to talk about this divergence between growth and value. And when you think about some of these names in the NASDAQ, you know, that have absolutely just gotten schmeistered, as they say, over the last few months in this year, 2022, this short year, this week has been no exception, man. Some of the devastation has just really been eye popping. And, you know, when you look at this NDX chart, we've talked about this again on many occasions. Five or six names make up nearly 50% of the weight of this index of 100 stocks. But what I find most interesting about the NDX is that the high, the all-time high, came in late November, right before this Omicron variant was really a market story here. And it never confirmed any of the new highs in the S&P 500. So what is that telling me? We saw good relative strength out of many of the mega cap tech stocks over the last month, but it's all of these other dozens of stocks, these high valuation names that have just gotten destroyed. And so to me, this is one you really want to keep an eye on because the relative underperformance 
performance to this S&P 500 is very notable, and that might be testing that uptrend or that 200-day moving average very soon, Guy. Last time we saw it move to this magnitude was obviously in the fall, and we tested that trend line, and you saw what happened. Obviously, we're on the verge of testing it again. This is interesting because the NASDAQ did not verify or validate no. The move we saw in the S&P 500, just something to watch. And we're going to talk about one of those individual names. And it's interesting you mentioned flushing. The first thing I thought of, of course, is the Mets. And it's it's fitting that a team like the Mets <laughs> plays in a place like Flushing, Queens, as opposed to the just the tremendous champions that have historically been the Green Bay Packers, which play in Wisconsin. Yeah, they do. And speaking of our friend who's going to join us in a couple minutes from Wisconsin, Russell 2000, small caps. This is one that has definitely been on her list here. We had that kind of false breakout a couple months ago. And the Russell has just kind of found its way back into this long range. And when you look at this on a one-year basis, you are not even seeing the ramp that the Russell 2000 had post the vaccine mm -hmm. news in November of 2020. And it really just feels like dead money guy. I mean, what's your take on small caps here? We know that the, you know, there is some value there. We know that there's a lot of financials in there. Why aren't the small caps acting better? They passed the test on December 20th, which was a Monday. We talked about it. We talked about the need for the IWM or the Russell to hold, the RUT to hold that level, and it exactly did. It held that prior levels of support, right? And we bounced off it. But why haven't they figured it out? Because I think the IWM, the RUT, they're struggling with why are rates higher? Rates higher because the economy is getting better. If the economy is getting better, it stands to reason that these most economically sensitive names would do better. Or are rates going higher because inflation that is out of control? And if you look at this chart, Dan, I think that's telling the story. It's struggling. So if the IWM, the RUT is struggling, I'm struggling as well. I think you're absolutely in no man's land here. I think you're looking for one of two things. Another breakout. We saw that false breakout in the fall. Or do we finally get through these levels of support? Next time down, Dan, I'm not convinced we're going to hold. But that's as what they say makes markets. Yeah, just to kind of put a little bow on this conversation about the major U.S. stock indices, you know, for me, the S&P 500 down about 2% from those highs on Tuesday, that's not enough to get in there and buy it. You know, I, I would be looking for at least a 5 6% pullback. But the one that really I want to focus on is that QQQ, the NASDAQ 100, because, you know, off of its highs in first quarter of 2021, when rates were rising, we're going to talk about rates in a second here, we saw massive underperformance by some of those major tech stocks. Apple sold off 20% from its highs in a sell-off of the NASDAQ 100 that was about 11.5% or so. So that's what I'd be focused on. I'd be looking to buy that. When you think about if we finally get the major components selling off more than 10% and you look at how oversold some of the smaller components are, that's when you're going to want to buy that thing when they finally, as they say, shoot the generals. All right, guy, you've had a great call on rates for a year. We started 2021 and the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield was below 1%. You thought it was going to make a quick run to 2%. You almost got there. It went to 177 in Q1. Well, it's been making this sort of ascending wedge, if you will. You've been buying the dips in yields. I don't know if you can actually do that, but you can. I mean, some people talk about doing it. So you've been buying it on that uptrend, and you think it breaks out here. There's a two-year chart. That would be a beautiful breakout unless it fails, then it's going right back to that 1-3 level. What is your take on the 10-year right here? Next couple of days, next couple of trading days, I should say, are going to be critical to that point exactly. Are we having a false breakout here like we've seen before? 
or is this time real? Is this the time we get through that 177 level and make a beeline to 2%? I think you know where my view is. I do think we make that move, but you got to watch it very carefully because, you know, if we close tomorrow somewhere between, you know, 163 and 165, which, by the way, given the volatility in the bond market, is not out of the realm of possibility on the back of what could potentially be maybe a weaker than expected job number, who knows? Then you're going to start talking about people saying, we're going to move right back down to that 13514 level. And that would take all the cards off the table in terms of what it means for the broader market and what it means for the NASDAQ, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, so let's let's just back this chart out a little bit, guy. We have a 10-year of the 10-year yield here, and this is on a log basis. And you see that level that you just mentioned to the downside, which, you know, on other occasions, back in 2012, back in 2016, back in 2019, when we saw the 10-year back in that range, people were calling it generational lows for yields. Well, it took a black swan pandemic to really have the 10-year essentially go to zero, right? So here we are. We just bounced off that range you see it quite well that two percent that is massive technical resistance here if we do get to your two percent guy do we see a breakout from there because we know what happened in the equity market in late 2018 when the 10-year was on its way up towards three percent we saw a mighty sell-off in the major indices well, I think, you know, we get to 2% and then the genie's going to be out of the bottle on a lot of different things. Then the question is, how quickly can we run to 25 3%, which we, by the way, we've seen before in 2015. It's not like that hasn't happened. We'll see. My sense is if that's going to take place, the equity markets would be under pressure, which would force the Fed to backtrack, which would probably send yields back lower. We'll see how that plays itself out. But that's sort of my view. But Nobody cares what I think, Dan, Nathan. I mean, they want to hear what EY thinks. And from now on, I'm just telling you now, just so you know, you call her Liz, I'm calling her EY. doesn't matter because she's brilliant with both monikers. EY, you've heard what we've said over the last nine minutes. What are your thoughts before we get into what has been an ex another extraordinary note out of you? So I don't even know where to start. I don't know if I start that you guys don't like small caps. I don't know if I start with 2% two, 2 on the 10-year or the Packers. Let's start at the end. So mm. we'll talk about the 10-year, talk about rates. There's been this like invisible hand at about 174 on that yield, right? We hit it last year. We almost hit it again later in the year, and we're knocking on it right now. I think we can blow through it too. I think we can get above it, especially after yesterday when you heard what the Fed exactly said in its minutes. And then the expectations of a rate hike moved up to March. Now there's like a, over 100% expectation of a hike by June. So we, we pulled the entire calendar expectation forward. I think that we can get through that 174 level and start approaching two. I don't know that we would stay around two for very long if we got there. I think what the market has to get through is we're going to see a rate hike. We're going to start to see a rate hike cycle but what we don't know yet is what does that cycle look like? How fast does it happen? And what sectors are going to actually see pain from it? Obviously, we're seeing a lot of pain in the tech sector because of it. We saw that yesterday. We're seeing pain in the high multiple sectors as well. I think as we approach that first hike, and I actually tweeted about this today, you approach that first hike, and it is a choppy time for markets when you approach a first hike right after a first hike, but it's not that bad the first time around. It's that second, third, fourth hike that starts to really hurt things. So I don't think that we need to get overly cautious at this point, but I do think that the Fed is going to have to move. I think we're going to get a good jobs number tomorrow. We're going to continue to get good jobs numbers. And I think there's a good chance that the unemployment rate is below 4% by spring. So 
when we get those numbers, the Fed has no choice but to continue on the tightening path. So before we get to your note on consumer spending, because I want to talk about it, I just want to give you a glimpse as to how my mind works. Not that you're particularly interested, but you mentioned the invisible hand. <laughs> and immediately I thought of the black hand who was Don Finucci in Godfather 2. By the way, Robert De Niro's portrayal of a young Vito Corleone was unbelievable. I encourage you all to go take a look at it. I also encourage you to take a look at what Liz just put out. That's a note on consumer spending. Now you're saying we are all millennials. I will tell you without equivocation that you may be, but I ain't. But please, wax poetic here. I, I barely make it. I'm what they call a geriatric millennial. So and I just celebrated my half birthday. I'll be 40 this year. I'm giving you guys plenty of time to think of a gift. It'll be in July. So I'm at the tail end of the millennials. Everybody else is much different than me. I identify with a different generation. But the reason I say we're all millennials is because we took a look at the data on our platform. So we have this financial insights ability called SoFi Relay, which takes all of your accounts and puts them in one place. We can track spending across all of the different categories. So break it down into four categories, dining, entertainment, shopping, and groceries, and then further break it down into experiences and stuff, which is what you're seeing in that chart. And the trends from 2020 to 2021 are interesting. Sometimes, you know, you look at this and you think, oh, that's not so surprising, but there are pieces of it that are surprising. So Let's focus on the experiences first. This is a total proportion of spending. So from 2020 to 2021, people spent more on dining and they spent more on entertainment. That is probably not a shock. Obviously in 2020, we were back into some sort of shutdown mode as winter approached. So we had more options in 2021 to go out and do stuff. But what I find surprising is that people did not hold back, even though we had Delta and Omicron ripping through the country. So just that resistance to shutdowns, that resistance to going back to where we were in 2020. And then the other surprising part, so we dropped spending or the proportion of spending on shopping, and we dropped the proportion of spending on groceries. So why that's surprising is because this was the holiday season. So this was November 1st to December 25th, and we shopped less. So I don't know if that means that we're selfish as, as Americans and we wanted to buy experiences for ourselves instead of presents for other people, but we also spent less on groceries. And this was a year where we were all gathering in houses. We were at holiday parties again. We were feeding other people at those parties, but we spent less on groceries. So I think that this is all a good sign because the U.S. economy is dependent on services. That was obviously the part of the economy that got hit the hardest in the pandemic, and it was the most sluggish to come back. We've been waiting to see jobs recover in that area. We've been waiting to see spending recover in that area. And I think that this is an indication that we're really on our way. Yeah, well, you know, to your point about experiences, Liz, you know, all you have to do, and guys pointed this out on numerous occasions, and this is really more of an expectation for future, I guess, future trends, like you just mentioned, continuing in this path. Look at Expedia trading very near 52-week highs. Look at Live Nation trading near all-time highs here. Even as we see, Omicron really didn't take much of a bite out of those two names. So I think it pretty solidly puts that sort of narrative in place for the balance of this year. Yeah, and, and the reason I say we're all millennials, Guy, is because we're spending more money on experiences. They say millennials spend more on experiences than on stuff. So if we're all doing that across the country, we're relating to what the millennials 
find most important. So let me quick question before we get to our first call and hopefully you can stick around. So for example, if I were to buy a bag of Werther's tonight and watch the Ranger game, is that me spending on experiences? Yes or no? Uh, it's both, but the Werther's puts you squarely in a boomer camp, maybe even later than boomers. I mean, Werther's is like a grandma's house thing. Yeah, duly noted. <laughs> Just for perspective once again, as I continue to go off the rails in this new year, you said you're going to be 40 in July. For perspective, it was December of 2003 that I turned 40. But I digress. The first call today, Dan Nathan, and I love when <laughs> banks do this. You know, this is sort of like the jousting. By the way, jousting doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Nobody ever wins or loses a joust. It's two cats on horses running at each other with these long poles. I saw the movie, by the way, with Ben Affleck and Matt Damon. It sucked. Sorry about that. Bank of America downgrades Goldman Sachs, says better to own Morgan Stanley, which I happen to agree with. And if you watch Fast Money, I've said it a number of times. What I find fascinating about this is all they did was lower their price target to 475 from 490 Dan, which is still significantly higher than we are now. And I think the average price target is 465 By the way, just to tie a bow on this, it was only a few weeks ago that Morgan Stanley upgraded Goldman Sachs but they have the same price target as Bank of America. So keep things in perspective. I think Goldman reports in a couple weeks, that last earnings report was ridiculous. The street was expecting $10 a share-ish. They came out at $15 a share. I think tangible book in Goldman's about 280 or thereabouts. I think it's reasonable to put like a 1.6 multiple on that and get a $460 stock. Dan, Nathan, what say you? Yeah, that makes sense to me from a multiple standpoint. But guy, here's the thing. Look at the way this stock has acted and in, in some of the other, you know, names in this space here with the move in yields of late. Now, obviously, Goldman and Morgan are not going to be as sensitive to, you know, kind of a rate move as, you know, some of the money center banks here, but it's really gone sideways for the better part of the last six months or so. And I think you really want to focus on capital markets activity and what the expectations are for 2022 versus a record 2021 and 20. 20 was also gangbusters. You're going to see a massive deceleration in some of the activities of company, companies coming to market, whether it be by IPOs or SPACs. M&A was, was huge last year. So I guess the expectations are for a more muted 2022 in that regard. So that makes sense to me. I guess I'd rather be in some of these money center names that might benefit from a rising rate environment, Guy. EY, what's your, we're not looking to get very granular here, but what are your senses on financials in the aggregate? Yeah, I mean, I actually find this call pretty granular in and of itself. And, and even just to talk about moving from buy to neutral, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, let's not overstate it. I like financials. I chose it as my sector for the year on halftime earlier this week. I like financials, though. You have to think about why. What are the drivers? I like them because of a rising rate environment. I like them because of the prospect of consumer lending picking up as the economy continues to recover. As we spend down our savings, we'll have to borrow to keep that spending level up. So when you're looking at the drivers, I mean, companies like Goldman obviously don't have as much exposure to that. To Dan's point, you're going to see fewer IPOs this year. We just came off of two years of record yeah. levels of IPOs. That always happens when the market is trading at record highs, right? Because companies are going to get valued higher. I think this is going to be a much tougher year as far as multiples go. So you're going to see fewer deals. You're going to see fewer IPOs. And you're going to see less trading activity. Number one, because we're not stuck at home anymore with nothing else to do but day trade. And number two, because you saw a lot of those new investors shift out of kind of the meme theme and into things like crypto. 
So there's not as much day trading happening in some of those hotter names, in some of that activity that a lot of these companies were benefiting from. So I do like the bank exposure. I also think, you know, just to, I got to throw a small cap thing in here. I'll, I'll even make it small cap and mid cap. But when you look at the exposure down the market cap spectrum, the sector weights change tremendously. And one of the sectors that is one of the largest weights in small cap is financials. When you look in the small cap and mid cap space, financials in the lower market cap areas have more exposure to interest rates because they're doing a lot of regional banking, they're doing consumer lending. So I still like financials across the market cap spectrum. I think that this is a pretty granular call for revenue drivers in 2020. Yeah, no, I, I don't disagree with anything you just said there, Liz. And I would just add one other point. We have the XLF chart up here and a lot of people think it's just kind of a pure play on money center banks and investment banks. The largest holding in that is Berkshire Hathaway at like nearly 13%. And Guy, I know that you and Buffett, you know, you guys spent some time together in grade school back in the day. <laughs> have you seen what that stock has done? Berkshire has gone literally from 275 just a month or two ago to about three it just broke out to a new all-time high. When I look at the XLF there and I see it's yet to break out to make a new high, to me, that's really interesting. That's showing some relative underperformance from some of these bank names, which goes back to Goldman trading in that range. So, Guy, thoughts there, brother? Well, I mean, the XLF committee might want to think about, you know, reweighting things. To your point, Berkshire is 13%. I think JP Morgan is 12%. And by the way, Charlie Munger and I went to school together. Oh, Charlie's a few years older than my man WB. But let's take a look at the Goldman Sachs chart because this is worth it as well. Sideways action since the summer. Question is, did we retest that low and we were in this bounce and we're going to break through? I do think we get to that 475 level. I think Goldman's earnings just surprise people. I think we've done enough work sideways to suggest we go higher. By the way, you mentioned Spectrum. As EY knows, the Flyers played in the Spectrum in Philadelphia for many years. Let's go, Dan, to our next call, if you will. This is your baby. You love this stuff. Yeah, first things first, guy. You gotta give me a second here. I went to school in Philadelphia. I used to see the Grateful Dead and the Jerry Band at the Spectrum in the early 90s. That's the, the only squad that I used to go watch at the Spectrum. All right, let's talk about this. This is UBS downgrades Adobe. Adobe was a huge, huge winner over the last couple of years in the SaaS space here. They downgrade the stock from buy to neutral. They cut its price target to 575 from 635. They're saying throughout December, we spoke with 14 large enterprise IT executives and service partners of Adobe to talk through their 2022 Adobe spending outlook. And I got to tell you, I'm not going to bury the lead here, guy. It didn't sound good. This stock has been down 25% from its all-time highs just about a month and a half ago. And you and I have brought this one up on a couple of different occasions. The day after they reported their Q3 results, that stock gap down 10% here. I look at FactSet's estimates for this thing. Okay, they're coming down pretty hard right now here. And that's probably what you want to see in some high multiple stocks like this, where I guess the enthusiasm just got a little too too great. And now the rubber's hitting the road as analysts are starting to downgrade at least their prospects for 2022 at lower growth. What's your take here, Guy, on this space in general? And obviously, Liz has a few things to say on software names. And I want to hear from me why quickly I'll say this. You look at Adobe and say, well, it's not that important a company. Okay, that's fine. Adobe is still a 240 billion with a B dollar company. That is not insignificant. So when you see a company like that going from 700 effectively to 500 in a month's period of time, 
That is problematic, and it's something that we've talked about for a while. You have all this damage being done under the hood, beneath the surface, that the broader market is not taken into consideration. I happen to think this is a good thing for the space because we're finally getting the re-rating that we need in a lot of these names. And Adobe will find a home, and quite frankly, I think it do has done that around the $500 level. This is something, though, Dan, that I think you want to take a look at. We don't talk about it a lot. The IGV, which basically has all the soft, many of the software names in it. Yeah, to your point, though, guy. I mean, like, listen, this is a two hundred and fifty billion dollar market cap company that's just sold off twenty five percent. One of the other top holdings in the IGV is Salesforce, that was also very close to about two hundred and fifty not too long ago. Has had a massive move, and that was also a down ten percent the day after they were reported their earnings about a month or so ago. So it's really important to kind of get a sense for investor sentiment. When we have fundamental news, they were hitting the sell button and asking questions later. But this was a big part of the tech growth story over the last couple of years. Liz, what's your take? Because listen, you can, it's really hard to find value in the software space. You can look in some areas in hardware and maybe semis and find value. It's hard to find them here. Thoughts on software as a subsector in tech? Yeah, so let's let's back up a little bit though. I think this is a year I keep getting questions from people about what do I do with my tech exposure? I don't want to exit the market. I need to put it in other places. But first I would say this is a year where you don't want just broad tech exposure and you have to break it down into what are the industry groups. So you've got the option of semis, you've got hardware and you've got software. In my opinion, 2020 was the year of hardware, right? We, we all got stuck at home. We had to buy a bunch of stuff so that we could work from home. We could do whatever we wanted from home. 2021 ended up being the year of the high multiples. We continued to have low rates. Everything just kept kind of flying. There were certainly corrections in between there, but there was a lot of multiple expansion that was allowed to still occur. In 2022, I actually liked the software space. And I'll tell you why. If you look at the names, especially in large cap, that are in the software space, I'm just going to draw broad conclusions here. I'd call them more workplacey names versus consumery names. And the workplace stuff, as we go back into offices, which we will eventually do, and we'll do more so in 2022, the workplace software can do better. Another thing that you can look at is if you just take software as a group versus semis and look at how they perform over certain periods of time, there's signals in there, right? And semiconductors have outperformed software over the recent period, software took a big hit. And I think that that does create opportunities. That signal that semis are outperforming software is a cyclical one, and it's a good one if you look at what the economy is going to do. So I think software is an okay place to be in tech, and I think you have to really choose your spots. I would choose them on the industry group level and on the sub-industry group level. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And, you know, just the, looking at that IGV chart really quickly, it broke that kind of breakout level from the summer to the downside, broke its 200-day moving average. I mean, guy, I think it probably has lower lows here, but it's going to be fits and starts, maybe kind of one step up, two steps back. But I'd be looking to add to those names because I think the re-rating is really important. When you think about Adobe, here's a stock that's trading 36, 37 times this year's expected earnings, about 13 times sales. That's not cheap. You know what I mean? And so, you know, if rates are going to continue to go higher, I think we probably see uh, lower lows in some of these software names. But to Liz's point, be patient, start to work your, yourselves into some of these names. All right, guy, listen, you know what? Morgan Stanley's oil analyst, or at least their oil service analyst, they must watch Market Call. Because last week, remember on this very episode, at this very time, you gave one of your top picks for 2022. It was Halliburton in the oil patch here. Morgan Stanley upgrades it 
This week, give it to me, bud. Well, it's interesting. I, I'm thrilled that they watched. They clearly watched CNBC's Fast Money. I'm sure, I am certain that they watched the halftime report each day at noon, which, by the way, EY is part of the investment committee. But just on valuation alone, and given the fact that I think oil is going to continue to grind higher, you got to love OIH here. And if you love OIH, you got to love the components. Obviously, Baker Hughes is one of them, Schlumberger another. But Halliburton on valuation, given that it's going to have about 50% EPS growth, you just give them a 15 multiple or so, and you're talking about a stock that should trade north of $30. So I happen to love this call. I think they are a tad late to the dance, but better to be at the dance than to be hanging out of your car smoking weed with Nick Cage in Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Dan. Wow, buddy. All right, look at this chart, though, because we backed this one out here a few years. I mean, it really, I forget the fundamentals, as our friend Carter Braxton Worth would say, forget the fundamentals here. That is a really constructive chart. You see that uptrend right off of the lows in 2020 here, back to that breakout level from that prior year here. And you just said 30 bucks on valuation. That looks kind of easy on the chart here. So that one's pretty interesting. Let's go to the OIH because it is heavily concentrated in a handful of those names. And you just see the waves that we had over last year. And it really did seem to move with crude oil. And we did see volatility in crude oil. Liz, what's your take on oil stocks here in in general, you obviously said you really like financials for 2022 or for 2022. How does the oil stocks, how do they fit into that broad view? I'm with Guy. I think oil continues to grind higher. I think, you know, we had minor shutdowns or maybe minor reductions in activity over the last couple months, but I think we continue to have growth in activity and oil goes up in the first half of this year. I'm really more of a clean energy gal. And I think that the transition to clean energy continues to happen regardless of fiscal spending or not. So if I really had to pick a space in the energy arena, I would pick clean energy. Okay. All right, Liz. So you have a podcast. It's called The Important Part. It's on the SoFi platform, but it's also more importantly in the, not more importantly, but importantly, it's in the podcast stores. You pulled Twitter for some Q&A. It drops tomorrow. You're going to answer a lot of questions on that podcast tomorrow, but you saved a couple good ones from Market Call. So we appreciate it. We're going to rip through a couple right here. So you said you are a geriatric millennial. Well, guys, just geriatric. And so this question really lines up well from him. This is coming from Jim Wentz, okay? Is gold still a good investment against inflation or has crypto taken that away from it? Liz, you had a great podcast, I think about two months ago with Anthony Pompliano or affectionately known as Pomp, okay? And he is a big crypto influencer. And you guys talked about all things crypto and you guys actually hit this very question. What's your take before we get to my geriatric friend's take on this? So I'm going to give a quick take. The crypto space right now is in a period of time where it's still seen as a risk asset and it's still pretty correlated with tech stocks or tech type stocks. So what's happened in the last couple of days is actually not what you would have expected to happen, where we're seeing rates rise. We have continued inflation fears and crypto got hit. Right. So the thesis around holding crypto as an inflation hedge hasn't held up over the last 48 hours. I think as we move forward over time, it will become more clear that crypto's thesis is about that decentralization, getting away from kind of the invisible hand of central banks. And as people start to understand that better, I think it will be a decent inflation hedge. Gold, look, I'm a geriatric millennial, like you said, I don't own any gold in my personal portfolios. I never have. I don't know that I ever will. I just don't necessarily see the merits of it 
over short-term periods. I think maybe over a long-term period, it's interesting. But if I were trying to hedge against the volatility that you see because of rates, I think I would choose crypto over gold. Jim, a couple things. You know, I'm glad your brother has been able to sort of revitalize his career outside of Philadelphia. It was sort of a tough divorce from the Eagles, but probably a much needed one. Sometimes you need to get a fresh look at things. And maybe that's what I need with gold because we're in the most inflationary period in the last 40 years and gold can't get out of its own way which is problematic. I will say this, it's interesting as the Fed has sort of gotten their act together, my opinion, and maybe become a bit more fiscally responsible, my opinion. You've seen crypto Bitcoin go from 67,000 to 42,000. One has to wonder aloud before we get to our next tweet, whether a responsible Fed could be the potential death knell for crypto. Dan, give us our next tweet, taking your tweets. Well, I like that. I just got to so say nice, this, because we, we were giving you a hard time about your age here a little bit. And if you go to your Twitter, at Guy Adami, you know, you were on Twitter well before Liz and I were. So, you know, you're, you're kind of, you're not the Luddite that, that you make yourself out to be here, buddy. All right, let's take this other tweet from Ooh Ah. He says, how come, or she, how come people on TV, she's speaking to you, Guy Adami, mostly recommend U.S. stocks and seemingly from a small pool. There are so many interesting stocks in the EU and Japan. If you live and work in the US, shouldn't you be underweight North America? Now, I'll just hit this really quickly. You know, I'll say the TV part, we're all on TV. It's really hard for a lot of retail investors to buy stocks in Japan. I mean, that's that's kind of, at the end of the day, a big part of it. So to me, you know, I invest, when I invest in overseas, I usually do through ETFs or obviously mutual funds. A lot of people have exposure like that. So that's just my two cents there. Guy, what do you say? Well, first of all, you know, I always f find it fascinating when people put a one at the end of their Twitter handle, which, you know, Dan Nathan one suggests that you're the first and maybe there are a few others. That's logical. But I'm hard-pressed to believe that there are more than one R mods R fat coup one. I mean, you really <laughs> needed that one? That's number one. Oh, number two, people on TV mostly, yeah, U.S. stocks. I mean, we try to stay to what we know. I can't, I can barely wax poetic about some of the names here in the United States, EY, let alone stocks in the EU, Japan, or other regions of the world. Just opine quickly before we get on out of here. I'm going to opine and give myself a pat on the back for using an international ETF as one of my calls for 2022 earlier this week. I think that there are opportunities internationally. If you use an ETF, you can get access to it a little bit easier than if you were trying to buy direct listings in Japan or overseas. So I would do it that way. But I do think that there's a revival in international in 2022. I know you don't want to stick around for one for the road because you got things to do there, things to do. So I'm going to say so long for now. We're going to see you next week for more great content from EY. That's my moniker, not hers. Follow her on Twitter, at Liz Young Strat. Not because she plays the mean guitar, but because she's a strategist. That's the strat in Liz Young Strat. And sign up for SoFi's daily newsletter at SoFi.com backslash daily to read Liz's articles every Thursday. EY, thank you. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Thanks, Liz. <laughs> now, Dan, we have to get to what we have come to know as one for the road. You know, we missed Butters last couple weeks of the year. He was on a much-needed vacation, but he's back, and he's giving us his earnings insight. Please, Dan, help me out here. 
Yeah, no, he is back. John Butters, we love his work here. He gives us a little preview of his Earnings Insight blog newsletter that drops tomorrow morning. So let's just focus on this because we're kind of a couple of weeks away from earnings season, Guy. We're going to be in the meat of it by the end of the month here. And John highlights the fact that more S&P 500 companies are issuing negative EPS guidance, about 56 so far, than positive EPS guidance, 37 for the quarter. You know, what's interesting about tracking this is that we know that, you know, the comparisons are going to get a little more difficult from here on out, you know, there, a lot of the earnings were buffeted by some really easy comps from the prior year here, right? In 2020, when a large part of the economy were shut down. And so as we get into earnings season, I think that a lot of investors are starting to think about valuation again. And we've seen that that's just kind of come with the fact that rates are going higher and those things go hand in hand. And I do think, and he mentions the fact that, you know, some of the highest sectors are information technology. That's probably where we're going to see it here because we know that a lot a lot of them got huge, huge booms off the bottom here. What's your take on this guy as we head into earnings season so, and what John's highlighting? So there are three highlights there. My The most important one for me, and this is all important, but despite the increase, the overall number of S&P 500 companies issuing negative EPS guidance for the fourth quarter of 20 is still below the five-year average. Yeah. So look, does that augur well going forward? We'll see. But to me, Regardless of what you think about the market, the foundation of it has to be predicated on earnings, earnings growth, revenue, and revenue growth. Everything else is just puff the magic dragon, as they said in that great movie with Ben Stiller, Dan Nathan. Yeah, they did, my main man. All right, well, listen, that was a lot of fun. We went a little late today. We had a lot to talk about. New Year has really, you know, kind of introduced, you know, a whole host of volatility and not just the stock market, but obviously the bond market. Guy, take us out with your thoughts on rates. And I, I kind of feel like you think this is the most important thing for a lot of equity investors to watch right now. Yeah, look, I think the next three, four trading days are going to set the tone maybe for the next six months in terms of where rates go. It's imperative that if you think rates are going higher, we need to close, in my opinion, above 175 or so in the 10-year over the next couple of days. Keep an eye out for that. I think that's going to tell the tale again for rates. And quite frankly, it might tell the tale for the broader market going forward. If you like financial data and earnings content shared during the market call, subscribe to FactSet's Insight blog at insight.factset.com to access more great content. Today's episode of Market Call was brought to you by our presenting sponsors, three. FactSet, we didn't have EY from FactSet, we had EY from SoFi, our second sponsor, and Open Exchange because, Dan, they manage virtual meetings that matter for the top companies around the world. We'll see you next week on Monday for Market Charts, Tuesday for Macro, and Thursday for Market Call Street Research. Later. See you, bud.